This is an IPA studio production. Title 35 of the United States Code, Section 103, mandates that a patent not be given when the differences between the subject matter sought to be patented and the prior art are such that the subject matter as a whole would have been obvious at the time of the invention was made to a person having ordinary skill in the art. Howdy, I'm your host Preston Morgan, and you're listening to Skilled in the Art. Skilled in the Art is brought to you by Intellectual Property Aggies, a student group at Texas A&M University School of Law filled with students aspiring to be IP attorneys. This episode is part of our Business Formal series, where we sit down with professors and practitioners and hear their take on the big issues of IP. This week we have Professor Sri Raghavan. We met her on our last episode. We recorded this when President Trump had just been elected. Since much is still unknown, her views of what may come are as relevant as ever. As we know, as a candidate, Donald Trump had indicated that pharmaceutical prices would be an important issue. It has been an important issue for not just Americans, but for the rest of the world as well. Uh, but as uh, a, a, you know, he also indicated that we could save about $300 billion just from uh, negotiating prices of prescription drugs uh, uh, under the Medicare program, uh, and if the drug prices are negotiated. Uh, but now, and I don't even know if that $300 billion is the right sum, because, I mean, I, I, if you look at some of the statistics that's come uh, on the prices of pharmaceuticals, there's a paper from uh, Mark Gagnon, I think, of Carleton University and Sydney Wolf, a 2015 mm-hmm. paper that particularly follows prescription drug prices for Medicare uh, and the cost of these drugs. And they essentially say that you can save up to about 15 to to $16 billion not as high as $300 billion, right? right? But that said, now that he is the president-elect, mm-hmm. uh, there has not been much talk about the prices of prescription drugs, right? In fact, uh, in the agenda of things that, uh, that the administration is planning to implement in the, uh, you know, in the area of healthcare, um, there are several things that, that that's being talked about, more funds for research and development, speeding the approval of new drugs, which is regulating possibly some of the new drug approval process, modernizing Medicare, returns to the more traditional uh, system of allowing states to regulate Medicaid. That's where the um, um, the Obamacare kicks in. This is where Obamacare actually made a big difference, and that's what he'll probably move it back to the traditional system, uh, allowing states to regulate uh, Medicaid. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. right? But there is no talk of prices of prescription drugs, right? So it's 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 one of the concerning things uh, mm-hmm. as far as uh, um, prices of pharmaceuticals are concerned. So were prices high because of R and D and the FDA approval process? Professor Sri says, not quite. Um, these things can impact the price, but pricing is a different mechanism altogether, 
right? Uh, now, the pricing of, now let me go back a little bit, right? And uh, President Bush uh, uh, passed the Medicare Prescription Drug Improvement and Modernization Act in 2003, mm-hmm. right? And, and that introduced part three for, well, part three, I'm sorry, part D, which represents a government program to subsidize the cost of prescription drug. Right, and uh, it also regulated prescription drug insurance premiums and so on and so forth. Right now, there are two things to prescription drug pricing. On the one hand, is the price for Medicare prescription drugs. Right now, Medicare prescription drugs are one of the highest, especially if you compare with other uh, programs like the VHS, the Veterans Health Programs, and Medicaid, and all of that. Medicare prescription drugs are much more expensive. We don't negotiate that. And that's California's Proposition 61, which got defeated, which was California, people of California, some of them at least, wanted um, the government, the state government, to negotiate cost of prescription drugs for the Medicare program. Right, as, as means to, as one way of reducing the cost of drugs. Right, so that's one uh, part of the spectrum. The other question with reference to prescription drugs is just the raising cost of, of drugs, which is an independent issue by itself, connected with several areas of law, including patent law, intellectual property law, right, whether public funds are being invested to create the, the drug. Right? And so it has a lot of implications on whether it's a uh, innovator product, it's a generic drug, and so on and so forth. Right. So these are two separate different questions, but each of these have to be dealt with in order to determine what do we do with price of prescription drugs. Next, Professor Sri describes a few real-world examples of drugs with too high of prices and how countries deal with it. Turing Pharmaceuticals is a recent mm-hmm. example. Mylan's uh, EpiPen, these are two big yeah. examples. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, With uh, Turing Pharmaceuticals, uh, once Turing acquired the, the, the company, uh, they basically increased the price of the, of the drug by something like 700%. Uh, overnight, I think, and it, it wasn't even a patented drug. It was actually a drug that was off patent, right? The other big example is um, Solvadi. Solvadi, that's a Hep C drug, hepatitis C drug. Uh, I think in the the United States pays the the highest cost for this drug in the whole world. I think, and oh. and that's by several percentage points. And and uh, and I'm not sure if uh, this ex- this exact figure is right, but it was somewhere around thousand uh, dollars you know per uh, treatment regimen so you know per day if you have to take it twice one time would be closer to thousand dollars so that's the you know so that oh. yeah, yeah so that's one of the other examples uh, epipen of course has played mm-hmm. out much in the public the cost of epipen and how myelin had to go back and you know uh, try to rework the price of epipen so that's another example of uh, how these things affect Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Americans on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Right. But but it's not just a. Is it just an American problem, or do, how do other you know poor countries deal with oh, this? Oh, it's a it's a global problem for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's now become a universal issue, mm-hmm. especially in countries like. Uh, so the, you know, if you leave America out, then there are developing and least developed countries, and they're not really as rich as some of the developed countries. So, you know, uh, so unless prices of medications are accessible. It's a true problem for these countries. It's a true problem because when people are affected with a certain type of disease and, you know, the drugs are available but they're unable to access it, it can in turn affect productivity. The best example there was South Africa, 
right? Segments of population had AIDS, and that was true in some other African countries as well. And it was affecting people in their most productive age, thereby affecting the growth and development, the the you know the GDP of the country on a on a yearly basis. So, access to medication is a huge issue in some of these poorer nations, some developing as well as developed nations. Um, now, there are also countries like Brazil, Colombia, right? These are countries that actually constitutionally promise access to health, universal, uh, you know, guarantee and access, uh, universal health coverage and access to health. So for these countries, unless it's priced, uh, you know, adequately for these governments to be able to buy it, procure it and give it to the people, it becomes a huge problem, right? And to the extent that as Americans we stand for democracy, right, this affects their democratic process, right? Because, uh, you know, if I have a government that's unable to give me the drugs and fulfill their constitutional mandate, Mm-hmm. It's going to result in that government, because they work with some of the developed countries, then it's going to become, you know, end up in that government being thrown out and the next one comes into power. And then they defy the only way they can actually fulfill the mandate to their people is by actually figuring out flexibilities to, to provide access to medication. So it's a, it's a vicious circle and uh, uh, it's a huge problem in some of these countries. Um, countries have dealt with it very, very differently. Uh, countries like India use flexibilities negotiated under the World Trade Organization's uh, TRIPS agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they use the flexibilities to create access to medication. They create flexibilities like compulsory license, right? Or Brazil has uh, constantly or, or regularly, I want to say continually, use the threat of compulsory licensing. So it'll say if you don't reduce the price of this medication, then we will compulsorily license it. Colombia tried to negotiate very recently uh, with Novartis for Gleevec, which mm-hmm. was which is a cancer drug, and uh, and they uh, and I think it's a chronic myeloid leukemia drug. Tried to reduce the price, and then when uh, Novartis said no, Colombia was getting ready to to impose compulsory license on Gleevec. India did compulsorily license Nexavar, which is. Uh, uh, which is another drug for, uh, I think, liver cancer, if I'm not wrong, I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Um, and um, uh, and um, it, it's, a, it's a drug by Bayer, the Swiss company. Uh, India did compulsorily license it. That's another example of use of these flexibilities. So countries come up with some of these flexibilities and try to deal with it. Um, it used to be a big issue to to work these flexibilities, you know, when they use these flexibilities, then the companies will will typically not like it, obviously, and uh, it used to be a big issue. But recently, there has been several reports that have supported the use of such flexibilities, which I think has been very good overall, given the income disparities in these countries. So the UN came up with its report uh, uh, on access to medication, and the UN report basically says poorer countries should be able to either negotiate the cost of drugs or uh, compulsorily license it. Um, at the WIPO's, uh, that's the World Intellectual Properties uh, Development Agenda, also has provisions for sustainable development, access to medication. Although access to medication is not specifically written, it talks about 
you know, development agenda that is sustainable into the future. Um, WHO came out uh, with a report on Hep C uh, and uh, Hepatitis C medication, essentially Solvadi, and talks about the the huge price discrepancies between mm. between neighboring nations and basically supporting the idea of look, we cannot do this. We can't just give lower prices to countries, to some countries and not to other countries and make this a bigger problem than what it should be. And uh, Lancet report. So there are several things that's happened very recently internationally, in addition to the Doha Declaration on Public Health and all of that, mm. so which has supported, uh, you know, steps taken or taking steps and steps that have been previously taken to promote access to medication. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, uh, so I wanted to go back and ask you about the, the threat of compulsory license uh-huh. that, that Brazil uses, right? Uh, so, it, how how effective is that compared to you know just giving compulsory license? What's the difference between the, the threat versus a real compulsory right, uh, yeah. license? Um, the threat of compulsory licenses, where Brazil actually or one country actually goes back to the to the innovator pharmaceutical, the manufacturer of the drug, and says, mm-hmm. "Look, if you don't negotiate the price with us, then we will compulsorily license it." Right. So compulsory licensing usually has a procedure. Right. Uh, And the procedure involves the government, like for Colombia, for instance, there is an Andean Community Pact and that has all of the procedures. India, it's a statutory process under Section 84 of the Indian Patent Act. Brazil, uh, in its own, it's called the Law 1064 or 1065 or something. And that law has um, the procedure for uh, compulsory licensing, right? So if you look at um, the threat, so Brazil would go back to the manufacturer and say, look, we are going to license uh, the medication. Now, in the case of India, and and more often than not, it's been effective. Then they'll come to the negotiation table and then they'll try to reduce the price. Um, In the case of India, um, they actually did compulsory license Bayer's drug. And that's one of the first and I think the only compulsory license that India actually issued uh, because the pricing was so egregious. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it was priced at like $62,000 for a year's worth of Nexavar's uh, treatment regime for Nexavar. Mm-hmm. Um, and the price was uh, difficult even for the top 20 quantile, people in the top 20 quantile by income to actually procure the drugs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and India found out that there are several uh, patients who were suffering without access to that medication. There were there, like 30 or 40,000 patients. I'm not sure of the exact number, but it ran into yeah. thousands. And wow. uh, over a period of two years, Bayer had imported 280, um, um, 280 supplies of that Nexavar into India. So, it, you know, the, the, there was a huge disproportion in uh, the amount that was imported into India and the requirement. So finally, a compulsory license was issued, and one of the Indian generic drug companies had requested for it, and it was issued. So that's how the so some countries have taken the step after some threats, and but Brazil has gone ahead and continued with the threat, and uh, they've managed to negotiate a price. So it's you know it's a process that works both ways. Most countries have some type of patent system, but they're not all the same. 
Professor Sri next tells us how so they differ. If we look at it, we have the developed countries, mm-hmm. which has a patent system, a flourishing patent. Well, I, I wouldn't call our system a flourishing patent system, but, you know, you've had a patent system in place for several years, right? For, for more than a century now. Uh, right? And then there are developing countries, which have had a patent system, but they've, you know, they've always treated patents on pharmaceuticals a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Right? So for instance, India always had a process patent regime only for pharmaceuticals, which basically means you can you can protect just the process, not the product. So which in turn results in a lot of competition because the product itself is not protected. Once you know the process, people tinker or tweak the process, and then you have the same drug made from a slightly different process. So it does actually result in more competition. Brazil had abrogated all kinds of patents on pharmaceuticals for a few years, and this is all before the World Trade Organization. Mm -hmm. After the World Trade Organization strips agreement was negotiated, uh, developing countries had until 2005 uh, to actually go ahead and institute a patent system, which many developing countries have actually gone ahead and done. Almost, I think, all developing countries have gone ahead, and they have a patent system in place now which are mostly TRIPS compliant, but many of them also include the flexibilities that TRIPS allows them. The least developed countries negotiated uh, at the WTO and said, look, even if we have a patent system, we don't have the ability or the infrastructure to actually innovate, right? You'll need a patent system only if you can innovate. We, We don't have that kind of infrastructure to to get into the innovation bandwagon yet. And so they were given time until 2016 uh, to actually have, especially in the area of pharmaceuticals, to institute a patent regime. And I think it was only last month, uh, the waiver, or November 6th, I'm sorry, this month, the waiver has been extended for least developed countries until 2033. Yeah. yeah, so they have a waiver from instituting a patent system. They do not have to have an interim system. That's an Article 78, that's 70 Clause 8, mm-hmm. uh, Subclause 8, um, uh, which requires some of these countries to establish a mailbox mechanism, a transitioning me- mechanism, basically. All of that has been waived for some of these least developed uh, countries. And, and uh, essentially, that's acknowledging UN's sustainable development goals and access to medication goals um, under the UN report. If countries have different definitions for things like non-obviousness, what then? Typically now, uh, post the WTO, the process is called harmonization. Mm -hmm. So under the TRIPS agreement, every country sets up what is called as minimum standards. And that's what is called harmonization. Every, all WTO members, except of course these developed countries, have standards that are at the very, the minimum standards are very similar. They all look very, very similar for all countries, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, so India's non-obviousness is, you know, it's comparable to our non-obviousness standard right. to that extent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, however, countries like India would use flexibilities like compulsory licensing to ensure that, uh, they've, they've only used it once, by the way, right? Uh, to ensure that if there is a need, if there's a public health crisis, then the drug can be compulsorily licensed, right? That said, India's non-obviousness standard has been in the limelight 
for several reasons. And that's an interesting story altogether uh, for two reasons. One is India has a specific section called Section 3D. Right. So Section 3D, uh, Section 3 talks about items that are not in mention. So subject matter exclusions and other exclusions. Right. Uh, So 3D talks about exclusions for what they call as minor innovations, which is esters, ethers, polymorphs. And so basically new forms of known substances. These are as a class excluded from separate getting a separate patent unless they can prove a therapeutic efficacy. So if you can show that therapeutically this different form of a known and patented compound, right, has a has a huge therapeutic benefit, efficacy as they call it, right, mm-hmm. then it's patentable. Otherwise, you know, as a class, those kind of patent applications are not uh, entertained. Uh, so that has been a very controversial subsection, which I think is not, uh, and, and I know I've, I fall in the minority when I say there's no problem with this section, because in the United States too, uh, the MPEP basically says if it's a, you know, if it's a new use of an old substance, you have to show new utility. There has been cases like Pfizer v. Apotex and cases where, you know, there has been discussions of new forms of existing compounds and how we treat that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, uh, you know, it's, there is also the problem. Uh, so let me get to the, the problem in the U.S. a little bit later, but I want to talk about India's non-obviousness. Mm-hmm. The criteria, of, uh, so that's one of the controversial subsections, section 3D. The other controversial section has been the section on non-obviousness in India. Uh, so in India, it's important to show that feature of the invention, which shows technical superiority and either technical superiority or economic superiority, superiority that makes it non-obvious. So it's not just, well, on the whole, from the vantage point, that test is also conducted from the vantage point of a person skilled in the art. Mm-hmm. However, you have to show a feature of the invention, right? And, and prove that it is, in fact, non-obvious, either technically or because it's not been show a secondary factor, but show that this makes it non-obvious, right? So the standard is a little bit higher than the United States. So that, that sieves out some inventions that would actually cross the threshold in the United States. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's used very strictly for pharmaceutical patents because India has, you know, it has some interest in uh, in ensuring, and many, many, devel- I mean, almost all developing countries have interest in ensuring that there is a strong threshold preventing minor innovations from getting patented because that's one way to allow access to medication, right? Uh, so the threshold is high. It's been kept high for pharmaceutical patents, and that also helps the local generic drug companies because, you know, if the threshold is high and the drug doesn't get patented, obviously it can be picked up by the generic drug companies and replicated, right? right? Uh, and that has caused some concern in, in countries like the United States where we where it's far easier in some ways to get uh, protection for these kind of innovations. Although there's a big debate, do we allow, should we allow those kind of patents in the United States in the first place? So that's the that's the separate, separate question that's brewing or yeah. it has already, it is a big question already in the United States. We call it the secondary patents, 
mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. uh, right? Patenting of different forms of known substances, for instance, right? We call it a secondary patents. Uh, in countries like India, it's, uh, you know, uh, with some small differences, it's generally known as evergreening of patents. So basically, you're you're taking new patents on uh, different forms of a known compound and thus greening it for a longer time than what is required. So, uh, so that's a huge issue. That's uh, that's also has some impact in the U.S. as well. We're going to take a quick break. While you wait, here's a message from Career Services. Howdy, are you a legal employer looking to hire? At Texas A&M University School of Law, we offer the following services for employers. Online job posting, on-campus interviews, resume collection services, and the opportunity to speak on panels or serve in our mentorship program. If you're looking to hire a professional and practice-ready law student, hire a future Aggie lawyer. Go to HireAggieLawyer.com. We're back with Professor Sri Raghavan. She's about to tell us how the generic drug industry in India affects the U.S. Sure. Uh, so when we talk about generic drug industries, uh, the Indian generic drug industry, I like to think, is a little bit different than the generic drug industry in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to start with the U.S. and then go into India. In the United States, typically once the patent expires, then generic drug companies, uh, they don't wait till the patent expire, but uh, they file an ANDA application, an abbreviated new drug application, uh, to to make the same drug and then once the patent expires the generic drug companies can compete in the market uh, and uh, to manufacture the same drug so that's why some drugs when it's an innovator pharmaceutical when the patent is uh, during the patent term the cost is high the minute the patent expires you'll see that the price comes down for some of these drugs because there is more competition generic drug companies pick it up and then they start manufacturing it Right. Now, Indian generic drug companies have been a little bit different. Uh, the Indian generic drug companies was formed post-independence in India, uh, and it was formed in, I want to say, about the 50s, uh, early 50s, in response to high prices of pharmaceuticals, imported pharmaceuticals. At that time, India did not have uh, its own generic uh, drug company. So essentially what these companies uh, did, because it did not have the capacity to innovate, no country can get into the innovation bandwagon like that. Neither did the United States do that, mm-hmm. right? So most companies start with being copiers. For, I mean, most countries start with being copiers first, and that's history. That's history in the United States, in England, everywhere in the world, right? So, um, so it allowed them to first replicate some of the patented drugs elsewhere, mm-hmm. right? And then sell it at a lower price, thus saving on the cost of research and development. This is all pre-trips. I'm not talking about post-2005. Uh, um, so that's how originally the generic drug companies in India developed. And for the longest time, over a period of time, the Indian drug companies would do research and its own research and development, come up with new processes uh, for for making the same products and so on and so forth, right? And some of these, and I've argued that in one of my papers, which is the regime did not, would not allow protection for some of these process innovations. Had that been in the U.S., it would have been protected as a separate patent by itself. Mm. But because India at that point was focused on just having process patents, it was impossible to, to get that protected mm. as a separate patent in India. So my, the point I want to make is it doesn't mean there is no innovation. All it means is it did not have, um, it did not have 
had protection at that point in time. What's next for this drug industry in India? She tells us. And that generic drug industry slowly grew. It's now, uh, you know, it's now an important uh, industry. And post-trips, that industry caters to providing low-cost pharmaceuticals for poorer nations like Africa and, you know, nations that cannot manufacture their own drugs. They don't even have the capacity to copy India. That's why India is now called the world's pharmacist, right? Mm. Because it caters to, to drugs for much of the poorer world by making. So, you know, in the food chain, these also are very important. That's the most important thing, right? I mean, there's the innovator pharmaceuticals, Mm -hmm. right? And then there are countries like India, Brazil also has a very good biotech uh, potential. Uh, So South Africa has its own biotech capability. So these are the, you know, these cater to to countries in the the least developed uh, spectrum, uh, while those countries first have to become copiers and then have to become innovators, right? So, and that's how the food chain works. And uh, we have to work with how the food chain, uh, you know, the policies have to fit within the realities of the food chain. We talked earlier on how there can be different bars in different countries uh, for getting patents. So how's the pharma industry affected when there's a higher bar for patents in one country, but not the other? Typically, right, pharmaceutical industry likes to have the same price across the board all over the world because what they try to prevent is low-cost drugs being imported into a high-cost country like the United States. You don't want Canada to be shipping in or so. I mean, that's in the interest of pharmaceutical companies because this is a high-priced market. You don't want Canada to be sending drugs here. And that's called parallel importation, right? When drugs come in at a cheaper price or any product comes in at a cheaper price, right, than the prevailing price, it affects their current market. Mm -hmm. And so pharmaceutical companies do not want that. They also do not want higher threshold in one country because that basically sets the precedent for other countries to follow and it really does not help them, uh, right, when other countries also institute similar thresholds. So uh, it's not something uh, that pharmaceutical uh, companies want to see. But that said, I do have, you know, there, there are statistics that in in India, for example, after India compulsorily licensed Nexavar, Bayer's uh, profits actually increased in India because the volume sales offset the, the reduced cost, especially in a country like India, yeah. China, which has like 1 billion plus people, yeah. Yeah. right? It makes sense to actually reduce the price and then sell in volumes. Uh, but it's just not a model that pharma is is hooked onto yet. Yeah. But I, you know, maybe realities will open them up to that model in the future. Next, we talk about data exclusivity. What is it and how it's used? Uh, so I like to think that um, data exclusivity is becoming more and more fashionable and mm-hmm. important, uh, partly because of some of the newer trends on pharmaceutical pricing. Uh, the UN report, so world over, the UN report, the WHO, WIPO, all of this, uh, all of these reports at least support the fact that access to medication is an important issue and that it has to be addressed. Even in countries like United States, which typically had, you know, which typically tends to, where pharma 
typically pharmaceutical industry lobbyists typically have a lot of powers people feel the pinch of high-priced pharmaceuticals right so given these realities uh, data exclusivity has become important in some ways for to protect the the, the data for pharmaceutical companies uh, data exclusivity is different from patents uh, data exclusivity protects the data that's given, uh, that's submitted to the FDA at the time of submitting for FDA approval. And, and the protection for data exclusivity is given by uh, the regulatory body. So that's different from patent protection. It's, it's a, so, and it protects the data about, uh, so when they do the phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials, right, the output of those studies, et cetera, are all protected as part of uh, data exclusivity. Those are all protected data. Yeah. Right? It prevents generic drug companies from accessing the data and then uh, either trying to get use that data to get another product approved or they have to wait until the ex exclusivity expires mm -hmm. and then uh, make their own ANDA application and then invalidate the patent. So in some ways it does checkmate generic drug companies a little bit. It's one of the compromises that the Hatch-Waxman Act in 1984 uh, arrived at, right? Mm -hmm. In a way, uh, allowing the pharmaceutical, uh, the innovator pharmaceuticals, the data exclusivity in return for uh, the generic drug companies getting some concessions. So that's the balance. Um, so we do see a lot of momentum shift and talk towards data exclusivity. The TPP, which thankfully President-elect Trump has said hey, he is going to not support right from the first day in office, right, um, actually plans to increase the number of years of data exclusivity. Right. Um, and I do want to say today I was actually listening to something in the NPR and it talked about uh, TPP being great for goods, great for environment. And that may be, you know, some of it is true, but it's it's been it's not been that great when it comes to intellectual property protection. I thought it was it's a, it was a it was trips plus and really skewed against poorer countries. Mm. Right. And so uh, uh, and I think TPP also. Uh, uh, TPP also was, uh, you know, was tending towards more data exclusivity, more data protection, uh, and and um, accommodating to that. Uh, now, if you actually see the recent trade negotiations between India and uh, U.S., which was like two months back, right, or maybe even less than two months back, usually these negotiations talk a lot about patent protection and flexibilities and how India should not give any flexibilities and how, you know, there are things that are not TRIPS plus. For the first time, the the focus of IP provisions was on data exclusivity, mm. right? Because the Indian minister pretty much said, look at all these UN reports and the WIPO reports. They all support access to medication, so there's no need for us to give up those flexibilities. So now the discussion has shifted to data exclusivity. So we, I do think it's becoming a very sort of in thing and there is a move to, to increase, uh, you know, the, the number of years of data exclusivity uh, for the future. There are a lot of hoops in the FDA drug approval process. Professor Sri tells us what effect those have on the market and uh, what issues come with those things. There are two things. Will the FDA process um, delay the time the drug comes into the market? It, the, the process is set up in such a way that the pharmaceutical company will go through 
three separate phases of clinical trials and uh, and if that process delays the the drug uh, there is an opportunity to get term extension for some of the regulatory uh, delays mm-hmm. um as far as the price is concerned i uh, i don't think it affects the price in fact i do think the fda process is important to ensure that you know safe drugs are introduced into the market so sure. uh, it it takes care of saf- safety and efficacy um the price of the drug the fda application fees are very high it really depends on whether it's uh, you know it's uh, Uh, for a drug that uh, has already you know whether clinical trial has been conducted has not been conducted and so on and so forth so the user fees for fda tends to be high but that does not uh, in any way affect the the price it's the patent that actually uh, you know defines the price of the product so if there right. is a patent on the product then obviously it's uh, priced at very high premium because it's it's monopoly and there is no competition uh, if there is no patent then obviously by definition if there is none there will be some soon competition so therefore the prices tend to be lower so professor sri mentioned that there's a relationship between patents and higher pharmaceutical prices uh, well is there a relationship between patents and more innovation there has been a lot of study which correlates patent protection uh, and research and development and mm. whether uh, you know more patent protection results in more innovation not necessarily right uh, so yes patent protection does in some ways of uh, affect positively innovation but it doesn't necessarily mean that more patents mean more innovation and that's been proven time and time again uh, especially in the united states the biggest question now is given the amount of public funds that are being invested like into research and development through universities and uh, you know and Uh, through uh, other such public bodies then is it fair to to have such high priced pharmaceuticals which has benefited from some public funding at least uh, initially right so the university conducts the the initial research and then uh, then of course private companies take over and then they they create the drug and the drug comes into the market so there is some uh, level of public and private funds involved but given the the pricing it does this in any way is it egregious that's a big question now and uh, in a lot of ways there has been push from non governmental organizations to asking the nih to to intervene and to use its margin rights which of course the nih has refused uh, where they think the price is very disproportionate to uh, either because there's been a lot of public funds that's been invested initially or the price is egregious making it difficult for people to to access the drugs one of the most recent controversies related to uh, xantai which is a drug that was originally uh, developed using public funds that was given to the UCLA and then the UCLA sold it to a Japanese company for almost a billion dollars and then they wow. resold it yes and and then the drug was developed obviously the drug is very high priced and one of the questions was should NIH use its margin rights and NIH are uh, few so that's you know much of the questions uh, revolve around how much does uh, you know how much does r&d play into the pricing part of it and uh, we see more and more studies which say that uh, yes pharmaceutical companies need money for r&d but given the amount of public investment into it not the the pricing does not justify uh, right the this uh, you know 
uh, justify the the amount of investment that's gone into R and D's. Um, I mean, uh, the amount of investment they put into create new drugs. There are also studies which say that much of the innovation is not has not uh, really been on. Uh, it's been on more cosmetic drugs and mm-hmm. uh, things like that. So how do we justify when you get money and then you invest it on a cosmetic drug, right? It doesn't really justify, uh, you know, the 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 typical. Uh, defense that well we need the money for R and D to create new drugs to to combat new diseases when some of it goes to develop uh, things like Botox or something like that right, right? or yeah. something along those lines so that's the other big issue with uh, you know with R and D as well and of course the biggest question also relates to secondary patents which is new forms of the same substance has been subject to patents there has been studies uh, both in the United States and in Australia and I actually think not just in these two places also in Europe which shows that those secondary patents can extend the life of the of the patent beyond the 20 years that's allowed statutorily so it can go all the way up to say I mean there has been instances which shows that the the extension has been for 10-12 years beyond the 20 year period Um, and and that's because you know the these patents are staggered to the, for the term to expire in such a expire in such a way that uh, the original innovator benefits from the staggered uh, patent applications, right? Um, so those have become a big issue too, and those have resulted. Those kind of secondary patents have resulted in pretty much protecting the turf of the innovator pharmaceutical. Um, company, yeah. yeah. So there, there is some correlation between patents and R and D, but that's been increasingly challenged, and I don't think it's as simple as you know we think. Which is, well, unless we have patents, we won't have R and D. It, it, it's not, it's not a justification to not relook at our system and to ensure that, uh, right? We look at a the patent system as such to see if our thresholds are in the right place and B to look at pricing and see if pricing as you know uh, pricing is so deterrent uh, that it needs a separate uh, you know a separate consideration so if you look at these different considerations and decide that change does need to be made uh, at what level do you make these changes is it uh, simply in the courts and litigation professor Sri says no it's certainly not just litigation Right. Uh, it definitely has to be a policy, mm. a concerted effort, a uh, concerted effort on uh, uh, from a policy p- perspective, but not just any. It, it can't just be healthcare policy. It has to be patent policy, health policy. It has to be a much more integrated look at the system. Right. And it has to be cognizant of some of the issues. Right. That that affects the system and prevents you know, not just the prices, just the access. And, you know, so it has to be an integrated look at several areas that affect this, this entire, uh, our healthcare system. And then, um, and then, and then make policy. I want to say policy prescriptions, because that's <laughs> the only way I think yeah. it yeah. can be addressed. So, uh, so we'll wrap up now, but uh, do you have any final takeaways from this? Uh, final takeaways is to is to actually watch this area. I think this is a developing area. This is an interesting area. There's a lot of scope for lawyers in this area, whether as a as a lawyer representing a generic drug company, as a lawyer representing private citizens, as a lawyer representing patient groups, or 
as a lawyer representing an innovator pharmaceutical company. I mean, there's so many opportunities uh, to work on, to litigate, of course, but also to work on policies, to work on, uh, right, uh, some of the aspects that, uh, some of the issues that's going to come up in each of these areas and uh, that affect people in some of these different spectrum. So it is definitely an area to watch out for and keep an eye on. That's it for this week's episode of Skilled in the Art. A very special thank you to Professor Sri for being on the show today. Thanks go out to IT at the law school, Braxton Bragg, Jonathan Minasana, Stuart Campbell, Alex Collins, and Vince Vela. Intro is a mashup of Supreme Court audio from OEA.org and music from Pease on SoundCloud. Saxophone is by our very own Matt Pellegrino. Send questions and comments to ipapodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks with Professor Sarab Vishnabat as part of our Business Casual series. This has been an IPA Studio production. I'm your host, Preston Morgan. Thanks for listening.